he's going to be on and uh, you know, kind of explain some of what the HVPA does because I think that uh, a lot of people don't really get a um, they have kind of a they don't really know what we do at the <laughs> with the Horseman's Group so he's going to be on and explain um, some things that uh, that are going on and uh, um, you know things that are operating and and uh, he's an interesting guy so hopefully uh, I think we'll have a good uh, a good show today um was going to lead it off talking a little bit about the the Keeneland January sale, which is ongoing. But a few hours ago, the news came down about the death of Prince Khalid bin Abdullah of Judmont Farm, who arguably is the most successful owner and breeder, perhaps in horse racing history. The list of accomplishments that he has is um, is, is pretty much uh, un- unparalleled. It, he he opened up, started the Judmont Farm in 1980, 40 years ago, and the list of accomplishments is is uh, amazing. Um, when you think about some of the horses that that he has uh, bred and owned, you're talking about not just great horses, you're talking about legendary horses, horses like Frankel, horses like Dancing Brave, horses like Enable, uh, Arrogate, just to name a few. He won, he owned winners of over 500, or excuse me, he owned over 500 stakes winners. He bred over 440 stakes winners. 118 Group 1 or Grade 1 winners. 100 of two of those Grade 1 winners he bred. That That's just a, a staggering number, considering how hard it is to breed one Grade 1 winner. Um, and certainly, he, he had the benefit of being well off enough where, where money was, was rarely an object. But there's other people that are also in that category that have never been able to equal the quality. It's not just the numbers. And his broodmare band is about 200 strong. Um, but just the, the sheer quality of, of, of the horses he bred, of the horses he raced. And this was a, a not a conglomerate like you see these days in racing where there's a lot of teaming up. There's a lot of people that... Um, that have means that, that still wind up going partners. And um, Judmont Farm horses were Judmont Farm horses. There was no partners. There was there was no teaming up. They did it their way and, uh, you know, Mr. Abdullah's way. And uh, he, he was not a person that um, had a, a big profile at the sales or at the races. He, he rarely... Uh, came to the U.S. I don't believe he, he went to the races in, in, in Europe uh, that often as well, especially as he's gotten older. But we're talking about someone who's a, a worldwide, not just um, a, a United States or a, a European. Um, we're talking about someone who who dominated for the entire top class racing in this this whole world. 
Uh, he, he won 16 Eclipse Awards. And, of course, those are North American awards. He was the top breeder five times, including 2001, 2002, and 2003 consecutively. He was the top owner in, in North America four times. He had five mares, five, that were named Broodmare of the Year in North America. In England, he was the champion owner three times. He won 21 Cartier Racing Awards, which is the European equivalent of Eclipse Awards. Um, he had Horse of the Year in Europe four times. Frankel won it twice. He was uh, the owner of, of the three-year-old Colt of the Year four times. Three-year-old Philly twice. He was the French owner of the year five times. He won the Arc de Triomphe six times. Um, the names of the horses that, that he trained are, are just, um, I mean, the, the list of, of great horses is, is so, uh, it, it's just uh, kind of unbelievable. Um, started out with Known Quest, excuse me, Known Fact was his first real good horse. Uh, known Fact you, you saw in, uh, especially in the dam side of pedigrees in this country, uh, up till recently, uh, he he was the owner of Dane Hill, um, Rainbow Quest, Roussillon, uh, Quest for Fame, Marquetry, Jolifa, Commander-in-Chief, uh, Aptitude, Beat Hollow, Flute, Banks Hill, Oasis Dream, Tate's Creek, <clears throat> Empire Maker, Heat Haze, uh, Intercontinental, Rail Link, uh, there's just so many of them. Uh, Frankel was, was probably the best of all of them. Uh, he, he was um, he retired undefeated, 14 for 14. Uh, Noble Mission, Flintshire, Kingman. You see, Kingman horses are winning um, over in the United States. Uh, it seems like every weekend there's, there's a Kingman um, that's running over here. Arrogate, uh, Enable. I mean, just... Uh, just an unbelievable, an unbelievable career as a uh, breeder and owner. Um, just uh, the the quality when you saw the silks, with the the pink sash and the the, the green, you knew that that horse was going to the post with a with a big chance. And I just. Um, I'm not sure what the plans are. I mean, he was 83 years old, so um, certainly it's not as though uh, they didn't know he, he was you know, clearly not going to uh, live forever, but uh, I'm not sure what the plans are, what the family is going to carry on or, or what's going on. But um, he has a, a, a pretty big influence in this country, uh, he's got horses with four or five different trainers. Bobby Frankel was his main guy in the United States. Um, and for years, and, and when Bobby died, he branched out. Um, Bob Baffert, of course, trained Arrogate. Um, he had horses with Bill Mott. He has horses with Chad Brown, Brad Cox. But um, chiefly, he was... Uh, Based in Europe, he, he's got a farm in in Europe. He's got farms in Kentucky, and 
it's just amazing to when you, you just look at the horses and the races that he won, um, how many of them there, there are, just the, the sheer number. Um, he won uh, the Breeders' Cup Phillies and Turf three different times with three different horses, all who he bred. Uh, he won the Breeders' Cup Classic. He won the Breeders' Cup um, Mile. It's, um, you know, it, it's just uh, uh, the numbers are just crazy. And um, it's, a, it's a big loss for, the, for this business. Um, we're going to listen to the stretch call of the final race of, of probably the best horse that he ever bred and raced and, and arguably the best horse anybody ever bred and owned. Around the home turn now, and about to straighten up for the gun. Two and a half out. Here's the bay on the outside. Gradually from bullet train. Here's the Samuel. But look at Frankel on the outside. Let loose by Cleary. He's starting to move up very easily. Challenged, one with ease, 14 for 14, won every big race there was to win in England and Europe, and, and um, certainly the crowning achievement of, of Prince uh, Abdullah's uh, breeding empire. Well, he's gone at uh, 83. The Keeneland sales are actually off to a pretty good uh, start. It's a Keeneland January sale, it's a four-day sale in mostly of of, um, of, of bloodstock mares uh, and uh, short yearlings. A short yearling is um, all thoroughbreds are deemed to have their birthday on January 1st. So yearlings, uh, weanlings turn into yearlings on January 1st. They call them short yearlings because they're they're barely yearlings. You think you know normally the yearling sale is. The, they begin in July, Fabric Tipton, and uh, of course the big sale at Keeneland in September, um, selling four or five thousand horses. But those yearlings are, are basically full grown yearlings. Uh, short yearlings are what's sold in in, um, in February, excuse me, January and February at Fabric Tipton has, a, has another sale coming up in a, about five weeks. But the sale's off to a pretty good start uh, considering the. The uncertainty of the world, uh, it's always a, a question mark how these sales are going to be um, uh, received. But the one great indicator for most horse sales, in, in the United States at least, is the stock market. As long as the stock market is, is strong and, 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 and uh, there's no real sign of, of any weakness, the horse sales generally follow along. And when the stock market dips, Generally, the horse market dips as well. Uh, you can make your own conclusion from that, but um, 
uh, Larry Best, who is uh, Don Chatlos, who we had a couple weeks ago. He's the racing manager for Larry Best. Larry Best bought, bought three short yearlings to try to add to his, uh, his racing stable. And there's two more days at the sale. It, it seemed, prices seem like they're, they're decent today. Uh, OBS has a sale coming up on the 26th and the 27th. Um, next week, we're going to talk to Helen Barbazon from Pleasant Acre, uh, Pleasant Acre Farms in, in OB, uh, Ocala. They are going to be doing some, some sponsor uh, work on, on our show, and, and they're standing stallions. Uh, they have 12 stallions up at their farm. Uh, it's, it's just west of o- Ocala. Um, Gunavera, who's uh, certainly a, a South Florida mainstay who, who won a $5.5 million, he, he's standing stud at their farm. He's, he's a first-year stallion, and um, they have quite a few other stallions. Buchero, who's uh, bred to 130 mares last year, um, he's going to be standing stud um, or continue to stand stud there at Pleasant Acres. And um, we'll talk to Helen next week and uh, get her views on, on uh, maybe a little post-Keeneland uh, sale and, and kind of see what uh, she thinks the market's going to be like for um, the OBS sale. We have, um, we have Najee Thompson coming up from the New York Breeders, and certainly we'll get his... Um, We'll get his feelings on, on uh, the market, where it's going on, and you know, everyone has a, an opinion, but it's a, it's kind of a wait and see. The the thoroughbred sales market is kind of a, a an animal unto itself, and it doesn't seem sometimes like it, it follows along with with the racing side of things, um, but certainly um, a strong sale market is not a bad thing. Um, of course, if you're trying to buy horses to race, if, if you're just a person that races and you're not into bloodstock, you're not into breeding, um, you, you want to pay the smallest amount you can for a horse because uh, certainly you'd rather than overpay. But, but the markets are, are kind of interesting, and it seems this year, I, I don't exactly know why, and it's probably more of uh, just bad luck than anything, but we saw an awful lot of horses retired to stud um, this past fall, and, and just recently um, um, a couple of horses that we kind of thought were going to be players in the older handicap division. Um, Tis the Law, Bodie Express, um, you know, went wound up being retired to stud and. Uh, uh, just uh, recently was I think yesterday was was uh, announced a thousand words, who never really he, he won one of the Derby preps at Los Al uh, last spring for Bob Baffert, but he never really put it together again, and uh, he's been retired as well. Um, so we'll see. It's uh, it's stallions is a, is a tough thing to do because the best credentialed stallions with the best race record that. Beautiful horses with a great confirmation and top bloodlines. More times than not, they turn out to be busts. It's just a very, very difficult. Uh, it's a very difficult thing. And the head of of the New York breeders, New York is, is turned into a very important state breeding wise, uh, is with us, Mr. Thompson. How are you? 
Hi, Chuck. How you doing? Thank you for having me on today. Glad to join you. Yes, well, glad to have you on. Uh, congratulations on your new position uh, as executive director of the New York uh, Thoroughbred Breeders. Um, I know you guys have a uh, an auction, a stallion auction, season auction going on right now. Is that correct? Uh, yes, that's correct, Chuck. Right now we have our NYTB annual stallion season auction on starquine.com. So I encourage everybody who's in the game on the breeding side to take a look, and you have a really good shot at getting a discount at the price of some great stallions that are available. And it's not just New York-based stallions, correct? That's right, Chuck. Uh, we're all over the map. We've got Liam's map, Always Dreaming, Tonalist. We're all across the board with a lot of help from Lane's End, Windstar, Farms in Kentucky, as well as New York, so a wide variety. And and that ends uh, Thursday at 6 p.m., so don't wait. Don't wait too long. And, you know, there's a sale going on, so maybe you can go out there and you can buy a mare, and you can buy a season, and you can fold in New York, and, and you can have a New York bread. Definitely. That would work well with the rewards program we have going here in New York. <laughs> now, give us a, a little bit of a background on, on how you got into racing, um, you know, it, it's always interesting to me that to the different ways, the different uh, places people come from, and, and and just the different ways that they're exposed to horse racing. Um, how did you get involved in in the game? Definitely, Chuck. Well, I come from a Jamaican family, as you know, former British colony. You go to any racetrack in the country, I think you'll find a group of Jamaicans hooting and hollering down the stretch. But uh, my family immigrated to the United States in the 70s. I was born in 1981, and my uncle, he was a big-time follower of the races and the track. So I would grow up growing in Long Island, going to the OTB. He was a member of the Belmont Turf and Field Club. And later, eventually, we as a family moved down to Florida. So I spent my high school days going to Calder and Gulfstream and just developed a love and passion for the game. You know, it's funny. You, t- you talk about the Jamaicans. because I-, I mostly grew up in New York, and um, I was working for Tom Skiffington, and we had a horse. Um, <laughs> it was funny. It was a first-time starter, and she was a gray filly, a two-year-old at Aqueduct. And I was walking over, and, you know, the walkover from the backside to the front side of Aqueduct, you know, the derby walkover is kind of a famous thing. The Aqueduct <laughs> walkover is, is <laughs> definitively not famous. And as we got closer to the grandstand, I saw seven or eight of Jamaicans came down to the rail and they started yelling, and I had no idea what was going on. And the filly's name was Ja. And I asked one of my friends who was to Jamaica, I said, why is everybody, you know, why, what's going on? And they're like, Ja means God. I was like, wow. <laughs> I, said, I got a lot of punch money bet on him that day. It was the filly. I said, man, I hate to say this, but they're going to be disappointed because I don't think she's going to run anything like a god. She's just a horse, you know? <laughs> but but th- those guys are, are the most enthusiastic uh, group of, uh, and vocal. Yeah. Vocal. Yeah. Um, but uh, they were they were mainstays in New York, you know. Back when we could actually have people come to the racetrack, it's it's kind of a, yeah. a, a an odd scenario now. But uh, you know, there there'll be a time that uh, that uh, it's ba- you know people will be able to go back to the track, and hopefully, I mean, it's uh, definitely you know it's uh, 
something everybody in the game and as a follower of the game, if we're going to grow the sport, we have to work on developing our proper protocols to get fans back on track. Let, let me ask you a question, and, and you might be upset by this question, but I have to ask you because it's like re- required because I'm in South Florida. Like, what's up with Florida State football, man? <laughs> well, Chuck, I am a Florida State graduate, and we have been struggling to put it mildly. You know, it's just uh, the program hasn't made the investment in, in upkeeping of facilities, and it's just like the racing world. You know, if you're going to compete, you have to invest. Whether you're a handicapper, you got to buy the proper formulator, time form tools. You know, if you're an owner or breeder, you have to keep on developing your farm. So just at the collegiate football level, we've just been slacking on <laughs> developing our overall program. <laughs> Funniest thing I heard, a guy said they should get Bobby Bowden and do like a weekend at Birdies and just see. <laughs> <laughs> Prop him up there. <laughs> Anyways, I didn't mean to upset you, but no, um, not at all. So, what was your first job in racing outside of maybe you know working at your family farm? Well, you know, my first job was I, I graduated college, and um, '08 was working in South Florida at a you know, local AT and T Verizon marketing. Got sick of it and just started writing different um, organizations, and I was lucky enough. Julie Levine, the head recruiter at Naira, gave me a shot. I came up and I joined the marketing department, just working on web, social media, and that's how I really got entrenched and was with Naira for 10 years before joining the, joining the NYTB. Right. Um, so your work, when you worked at Naira, you worked in the publicity office? Yes. Yeah, I spent my last four years in the, in the press office working. You know, you know those guys, great some people. Uh, Jenny Kellner, uh, you know, freelance guys like Phil Janik, just a great team overall and learned a lot. Sure, sure. Yeah, the, you know, the one great thing about about the Naira circuit is is that uh, you get to move around a little bit. You know, you're, you're not at the same track um, yeah. every old time. That, that's, I was at parks for a couple of years, and, and the monotonous nature cool. of just the same track, the same place, never seeing anything new, um, and, and even down here in South Florida now, um, we're, we're at Gulfstream 10 months a year, and, and perhaps we're going to be there 12 months a year. Um, it, it just, uh, you know, being able to go to Saratoga was always something that we, yeah. uh, you know, we, we, we appreciated. And um, where, uh, so, so where are you based out of? Where is your office? For? You know, the office for the organization is in Saratoga, unfortunately, with COVID right now, we've had to shut it down. So I'm working from home here in Brooklyn, but I plan to relocate to the Saratoga region by the spring, trying to miss out on the cold winter. That's not a bad deal, getting to relocate <laughs> to Saratoga, to be honest with you. Definitely not. You know, that, we always say in New York, that's the big payoff, right? You, you work uh, Aqueduct for the first six months of the year, then you enjoy the good weather at Belmont with the spring, summer meet with the Belmont Stakes, but the big payoff is Saratoga and you just can't compete with the fields and the races they have going daily. You know, just—I grew up in Saratoga, so I'm a little bit spoiled. But there's just something about it, and it, it's hard to exactly say. Um, you know, the, the, it's an all-encompassing thing. Just driving into the town and and seeing—I um, mean—and and the town. Listen, the, the town has changed a lot since I was a kid, but right. you still see some of the the, the old standbys and. Uh, the grandstand when you drive up, you know, Union, you just mm-hmm. look at, and it's just, uh, you know, at night sometimes when the lights are still on and it's dark, it's just, uh, uh, it just seems like you're, you're uh, the, the, the old uh, 
was it Joe Hirsch saying yeah. uh, you, you drive up uh, the north way and you get off exit 14 and you go back 50 years or something like that. Just uh, <laughs> it's, it, it is true. I remember uh, my first time up there in 2011. I just couldn't believe. My uncle used to take the Peter Pan bus on frequent visits, but my first time going to the town and the track, and it was just surreal, the love and the amount of excitement. With the, you're getting fans up to twenty to 30,000 per day at the races. It's just amazing to see. I remember when they used to have a train that would go wow. um, from... Um, uh, I, I, maybe Penn Station, and it, it would go to Saratoga. They have a little tiny train station, Saratoga, and yeah. it w- it would leave New York like I don't know eight in the morning, um, and get up there, and and uh, people would would come over for the races, and then after the race were over, they'd go back, and the the train would would go back to New York. Um, I don't even know if they have that anymore, but uh, yeah, it's just uh, Saratoga's. It's just, uh, you know, there's nothing else like it. Definitely, definitely, Chuck. So your new job, your new position, um, what does it entail? What does the executive director of the New York Thoroughbred Breeders do? Well, you know, as an organization, we represent the breeding interests of the breeders in New York State. Really, our mission is to improve and build upon the New York program, making it beneficial for breeders working with organizations such as Naira and At Finger Lakes on how we can improve the New York Bread program because even just looking at Naira, over 50% of the races they run are New York Breads. How can we improve the quality of stock coming into the state, improve the program overall, and help lift it up to, you know, see more horses like Tiz the Law, yeah, Brooklyn Strong, and, you know, just going over and over the, the building of the brand, diversify, and strengthen the program. That's my role and seeing what initiatives we can take to lead that march. Yeah, New York breads have, have really taken um, a, a huge step forward over the last 10 or 15 years. I remember when, when they just used to run, and I think it was a law, and it might still be, that they had to run a race every single day, uh, a New York bread race, one race a day. And I remember when I was a kid that they would struggle sometimes um, to get a New York bread race to go. Um, And the program, you know, started to take off. And, and, uh, I mean, nowadays, with the the way, uh, I think opening up and allowing um, people to drop foals from uh, better stallions, uh, from Kentucky and such, I think the quality just raised uh, yeah. that much more. And and I mean, there used to be a stigma attached to being a New York bred, as as to most state bred, you know, places. That, you know, you, you say, well, uh, you know, he's not a Kentucky bred, but um, I think that that's mostly gone these days. Yeah, no, I, I would agree, Chuck. You know, um, I, you know the sport of the game of horse racing. We develop friends all over the world, and I remember my friends would people I'd meet that come over from Europe, and their attitudes have changed, and they're you know they're thinking of New York bred or even you know American horse, North American horses that have competed and won over in England. So the game is really leveling out all across, from you know state bred programs to worldwide. I remember four stars, all star. Leo O'Brien, and this is this is probably a little before your time, went over to Ireland and won the Irish Derby uh, wow. with the New York bred. 
Uh, Four Star Dave obviously was uh, yeah just a uh, you know a, a legendary horse. As he, he was kind of like the John Henry of of New York breeds. Oh, definitely, and Richie Migliori. Just you know, I've seen the, the photos Four Star Dave's and the. I remember watching some of those races as a kid, and you know the, the photos and statues are still around town. Uh, Thunder Rumble was was really one of the best uh, early New York breads. Uh, early, I think I think he ran in nineteen ninety two or. But uh, he won the. Uh, pretty sure he won the Travers, um, as a New York bred. Uh, Richie O'Connell, I'm, I'm, I, I think. There was a horse, Paul Cornman, ex the the old uh, turf rider. Um, speaking of John Henry, uh, owned named Win that Sally Bailey trained that almost beat John Henry wow. in the New York, in the Turf Classic. And this is this is I think pre Breeders Cup. So wow. the Turf Classic was was kind of um, one of the Breeders' Cup races that was emulated by the Breeders' Cup turf. And and Wynn ran John Henry right to the wire. Uh, and at the time, it was it was certainly probably the best performance by a New York bred because John Henry was a three-time horse of the year and uh, a, a famous horse. He, he was um, not just a, a great horse, but he was a horse that, uh, of course, he was a gelding and he, and he ran until he was 10, but... Um, yeah, the, the New York bread program with Tis the Law. I mean, I I'll be honest, I forgot Tis the Law was a New York bread. Yeah, you know the way he, he he was campaigned, but the way he ran just great, and he just the way he dominated an open company when he was at his best just shows you how much improvement there has been in the New York breeding program for the last ten years. Do you have any? Um, you guys have a really great website, by the way. It's <laughs> it's, a, it's an excellent website. I, I was looking at that uh, today and. Um, Theo Rito won the 1981 Whitney. It was just it was just a text to me by by my resident uh, historian <laughs> Jason Bidas. He said Theo Rito, who I, who I believe shipped in from the Finger Lakes. Wow! And I think that's a thing that the people that you know don't pay that much attention to the Finger Lakes don't realize that uh, you guys run a lot of races for New York Breads at the Finger Lakes. Definitely, uh, I would say at, at least 90% of the program is for New York breads. And, you know, they've continued to work in building up their programs with the rewards of the New York Breeding and Development Fund and, you know, strengthening their cards and kind of looking at, looking to using the track as a springboard to later jumping out to Naira tracks. Yeah, that, that, that really helps because it, it gives you a, number one, it gives you a lot of other races to, to choose from. And if your horse... Uh, like we're saying, there's so many good New York breads now that that I mean you don't even consider them. Um, you, you know, you consider them. They're by Kentucky Stallions and they're out of Grade One winning mares. So those type of horses are are, are really tough and and they've really kind of raised the stature of New York breads as a whole. But you know, the Finger Lakes program does give you an opportunity to uh, to still be able to win races with with pretty good purses. Definitely. Uh, you know, we have to have different levels for different horses, and I think, you know, maybe, you know, I, there's always the argument there's too much racing, but certainly there has to be a level for horses that can rise up and compete at a level where they're competitive. For sure. Um, and you guys, you run the, uh, you still have the Stallion Series, correct? Yes, that's correct, and that, that's a program that was developed by former executive director Jeff Canizzo, and in coordination with Naira and Martin Panza, 
and kind of trying to elevate the stallions here in New York and giving them a chance for people who invest in the program to run for big purses and being able to strengthen and build up the program. And it's really worked out well so far. Yeah, I think that's important. Describe, I mean, I, I know you're, you're kind of new, but um, you guys seem to have a, a, a good working relationship with Naira. Um, and it seems like that that's an important uh, that plays an important role um, in in helping the New York bread program grow. Definitely, uh, you know we've, we've all got to move it. We don't have the support of Naira, the Stallions in New York uh, standing this, uh, or, or maybe you know, relocated stallions for this breeding upcoming breeding season. Sorry, I missed your last question, Chuck. No, I said, uh, who are the the new horses coming in? The new stallions, uh, either new stallions or, or maybe perhaps relocated from another area, uh, coming for New York for the 2021 season. Certainly, we have uh, Mr. Monomoy coming in, starting his stallion career here in New York as well. Fog of War. Previously trained by Chad Brown, the Warfront, and you know, I came for a day. So the program is continuing to grow with quality stallions coming into the state year by year. Yeah, that that's a. I think that's an important thing, and and that, um, like you said, you, you have different levels of of breeding. You have different levels of racing, and um, not everyone who is a breeder in New York probably can afford to send their mare to Kentucky to breed to a $50,000 stallion. So having a a nice variety of stallions seems like it's a, um, you know, a beneficial thing. Definitely. Um, Now, this past year, because of the the COVID um, restrictions and such, uh, New York being, at the time, having really strict regulations, the New York bread sale was moved um, is and, and this might be a question I'm not sure that you have the answer to, but um, the plan is is to have the Fazek Tipton the New York bread sale at Saratoga back this year at Saratoga. Yes, Chuck. You know I'm reaching out. We're going to have discussions with Boyd Browning and Fazek Tipton to make sure that sale is back in New York. You've seen the rise in the quality of how that sale is done and the upliftment it's brought to the program in New York Breads taking place in the summer during the Saratoga meet. So it's my top priority to bring that sale back to New York this year. <laughs> the quality got so high, I, I couldn't afford to buy horses in that sale anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a, definitely a six-figure and up-watcher. Definitely. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know the, the 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 quality of horses just got better and better and better, and uh, of course that that's a great thing. I mean that that's that's got to be the goal of, of your you know your group, and uh, um, certainly breeding horses is a it's a difficult thing. And um, we were talking when I opened the show up about uh, the unfortunate death of. Uh, of Khalid Abdullah, who, who owned uh, you know, Judmont Farm, who's you know just yeah. a, a, a giant in, in the game of, of breeding and owning, but breeding especially. And when you when you look at some of the numbers 
Um, I mean, he had the North American Broodmare of the Year five times. <laughs> it's just <laughs> unbelievable. Like, uh, people don't realize that he bred 102 Grade One winners. So people yeah. have no idea how hard it is to breed a, a winner yeah. than a stakes winner, let alone you know, graded, you know, Grade One winners. And of course, like I said, he had the means to be able to to have top, 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 top of the line. But um, it's a difficult thing breeding horses. It is, it's not an easy thing. And, and uh, I think, uh, you know, you guys have been able to make um, it financially viable. Uh, talk about um, Breeders Awards and, and such, uh, and Stallion Awards. You have, you, does New York still have Stallion Awards? Yes, yes, we do, Chuck. You know, we're working, that's through the New York Breeding the New York Thoroughbred Breeding and Development Fund, which controls the rewards program in New York. And we've worked every year to get elevated levels, and it's funded by the VLT machines and the casinos. So, you know, what's really key for us is working with our lobbyists in order to secure that funding and potentially increase it now with the prospects of sports betting being allowed in New York State. We're really, you know, working with lockstep with Naira and making sure that, you know, Horse racing gets funded through sports breeding, and so do breeders as well. Yeah, I mean, I think for you guys, it's 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 pretty easy to make a case that that fund doesn't just um, line the pockets of, of wealthy owners, as it often uh, fund <laughs> horse racing yeah. funding actually gets gets labeled as. But because you know you're 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 investing in, in farmland, you're investing in uh, you know people, uh, all the ancillary jobs that are created by a horse, you know, being bred in New York, standing in New York, um, you know, being raised in New York, the feed people, the, the blacksmiths, the vets, uh, the, the people who work on the farms, the people who do the fences, the, I mean, there are just so many, um, you know, economic benefits to that. It, it's, uh, it's a, it's a very, it's a very important, you know, factor. Definitely. You know, uh, New York State, we bring in thoroughbred industry, over 19,000 jobs, $3.3 billion in economic impact. So it can't be understated. We do have a voice. We've just got to work together and unifying that voice when we talk to the governor on what we want. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's kind of a – I mean, that's the thing is, uh, unfortunately, in, in racing, we've, we've gotten more and more um, – we've fallen more and more under the control of government – in certain yeah. ways, or they, they kind of used to leave us alone because we were a revenue source and um, we weren't much of a pain in their you know rear end. But now, like with the VLTs, the money, I mean, every, everybody's got their hands out, and um, you know that that's one of the scary things for racing as a whole. Um, you know, proving our worth and proving that the money that's invested is uh, is going to be you know worthwhile for the state as a whole. Um, can you tell me um, approximately how many uh, New York breads were bred last year or the last few years? Oh, you know, I unfortunately don't have those numbers on hand with me at the moment, Chuck. But I, I know that. Um, well, tell me this: you know, is it is the trend? Um, are you guys holding your own? I know, because you know, if you look over the last ten years or so. The, the 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 whole annual full crop of, in North America for all thoroughbreds has has dropped. 
Yeah, no, the the same is, has unfortunately been the case in New York as well, where we're seeing a slight decrease in the full crop year by year. So, you know, that's why we're working with our lobbyists to try to get incentives and subsidy programs passed so that breeders can get the funding to help increase the full crop and working on res- residency rules so we can bring in quality mares because, as you know, if we don't have the horses, we don't have the racing. No, no, that's that's very true. Um what it what like give me your feeling on on um <clears throat> on where you think racing is headed in the future uh this not not as as uh, the executive director of New York Breeders just your own personal opinion from from you know having worked at, at the track and and having you know seen uh you know the backside and and such like just give me your your opinion on that Definitely. You know, uh, Chucky, it's, the game is changing as the world is changing, but I think, you know, better is appreciate and view, the viewing public appreciates quality cards. So in the future, I think we'll get to a program in racing where we'll just have, you know, we no longer, at least in New York, it's rarely besides the Saratoga meet that we race five days a week. But, you know, we're looking to develop quality cards big fields, and so I think you'll see the sport continue to grow and be broadcast on television if we can work toward an angle where we can have the most competitive days and not just certain meets during the year, but daily with big fields, betting interests, and just overall depth overall in the program. You know, as you stated before, um, opening when you came on, um, you're of Jamaican descent, and obviously... This business does not have the greatest record with diversity, as seen by this past weekend's kind of debacle um, over the naming of a horse that you know that was renamed. And um, what are your feelings on on trying? Uh, because I have I have strong feelings on this, but I want to hear your feelings on on what can racing do to not only increase the diversity. Um, in 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 the game, but what can we do to try to broaden our horizons to make ourselves um, you know more attractive to uh, different demographics than uh, you know old white guys? No, no, definitely, Chuck. You know, I I think the the first steps are being taken by the industry, as we saw the reaction to what happened over this past weekend, which I think is a good first step. But as a, you know, as a racing world, we just have to continue working in communities. You know, we look at our racetracks. More often than not, they are in inner-city communities. So tracks should be reaching out, developing programs where students can come by, experience racing, learn. As well, we just have to do a better job of recruiting and bringing quality talent across diverse backgrounds. We know the working sector in our industry has a big Latino and population and they're very qualified i'd like to see potentially television deals with telemundo univision we just have to expand across the board and continue to grow in doing so yeah i I was disappointed when when naira cut their spanish language um yeah section and i I understand budgetary reasons but um to me it's i tell you you know you think you, you, everyone has their own version of the world. You know, your view is yeah. different than my view. The position than this guy's view, and it depends on on not just um, uh, you know where you live, but but you know your age, 
your your sex, your 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 race, um, your uh, level of education. I mean, there's there's a million different layers to every society. Well, I was I'll be honest when Gulfstream said made the announcement a couple years ago that they were going to be holding the Caribbean Classic on a right. Saturday in the championship meet. I thought they were nuts. Yeah. I said. Well, you're going to bring horses from all these places that nobody here follows. You're, you know, yeah. you're bringing them from Mexico, you're bringing Mexico. them from Jamaica, from Barbados, from um, you know uh, Venezuela, all, all these places where you know the the betters, your everyday betters, don't have any familiarity with them. You, they don't have very good lines on them. The PPs are kind of spotty, and no one really knows the trainers. And you're going to run this on a Saturday. When Goldstream on Saturdays handles ten, twelve, fifteen million dollars on a normal Saturday, yeah. So I was kind of skeptical because honestly, I really had never paid attention to the Caribbean Classic <laughs> because it was always held somewhere else. And the first time they had it, I, I'm driving into the track. It's about I don't know quarter to one, and it's like Florida Derby Day. Yeah. There's no, there's no. The traffic everywhere. There's no parking. There's a million people. And it was like one of the best days of racing you could imagine. And, and everybody was, uh, I mean, they would cheer everything. Horses would come on the track, they'd cheer. Horses would go by, they'd cheer. Horses would break from the gate, they would cheer. The horses would cross the wire, they would cheer. <laughs> and, I, I mean, the, they had, um, uh, they were selling, uh, you know, uh, food and, and, and drinks and, and it was just like this amazing day that um, they wound up handling like like ten or eleven million dollars, and and part of it helped was, was probably having uh, the Ortiz brothers rode, Luis Saez right. rode, so, yes. so at least there was a familiarity with the jockeys. But but it, I think it it shows it, it was like a lesson to me that um, you know my my world didn't include that that grouping and. There was there's so many people, um, and, and and this was mostly um, Spanish descent, um, but it was a huge deal for them, and I had no idea. And, and I think that was kind of to me it was a lesson that hey, you know, if we look to other cultures, and in racing especially um, in some areas like Southern California or. Mm-hmm. South Florida and New York as well, where there are um, literally millions of, of Spanish-speaking people yeah. that, that are, are within a, a 20, 30, 40-mile radius of the track, and how that is kind of like an overlooked demographic, and w- especially when you, you consider the backside um, is mostly Spanish help. Most of our jockeys, our successful jockeys, uh, uh, come from um, you know other Spanish-speaking countries, and it's almost like, man... Uh, yeah, you're, you're not going to have a Caribbean Classic every week or once a month or anything, but it just goes to show you that there there is demand for racing, and maybe we we're, we're just looking in the wrong places. And that's why I think that diversity is important. I, I really think that diversity in hiring um, is important because you're getting people that see the world in a different manner than you do. And I think that's one of the problems with the horse racing has always been. Um, you know, I was talking about it with Barry last night on the podcast last night that, you know, we kind of do this because we always do this and this is the way we do it in tradition. And I think the outcry 
over the Belmont this year. There was so much whining about the <laughs> Belmont being moved yeah. and, and being, you know, run at a different distance than a mile and a half. I mean, in the face of a pandemic, and this was at a time, and it's easy to look back now because things seem much normaler now, but this is yeah. when there was no other sports that are, were, were on. I mean, nothing was going on, and we didn't yeah. know what was going to happen. And people went nuts over the quote-unquote tradition. And I remember saying, one of my first podcasts, I said, what about all the other traditions that have gone by the wayside racing that nobody said anything about? <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we were, like, people are freaking out because, oh, this is not a legitimate race. And I'm thinking to myself, like, this is so racing, you know? Like, we're, we're, yeah. we're, we're going to bash, uh, we're, we're actually going to have a classic race when, all sports in this country are shut down. We're, we're going to run a race. Uh, we're going to have, uh, at the time, the, the best three-year-old in, in training was, was running in it, and, 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 and racing people still cried. Um, yeah. You know, you were working for Naira at that point, so you, you had a pretty, uh, you know, you had a, 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 a front-row seat, correct? Yeah, no, Chuck, you're exactly right. It was a surreal day. And even as a NARA employee, you know, in, in one instance, we were kind of, you know, disappointing that it wasn't at the customary classic mile and a half. But as you stated earlier, you know, we just have to adjust and the game adjusts. You know, this year it'll go back to a mile and a half. It was just a, a brief moment in a, in a you know, just a, a year that nobody could foresee. So, you know, those traditions and they adapt over time and they change and the game will have to change and adapt just as everything else in the world in order to elevate and continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's as important as anything. And I think racing has a, a hard time, um, not, not just reversing course, but changing course. You know, we change course like a, like a cruise ship, you know, (laughs) like it doesn't, it takes a long time to, to get things even moving in, in a different direction. And, um, and hopefully that, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of smart people out there too. And that's the other thing that I think that for too long, racing has been, um, you know, dominated by, by older people. There's a lot of industries are, but I mm-hmm. think that there's a lot of new ideas and people that, that have a different way of thinking. Um, and that's, that's the one thing that, uh, I would really like to see happen. Just, you know, taking some of the ideas that come from, uh, maybe a little bit outside of racing um, right. or, or racing in a different country and, and kind of adopting those kind of ideas. No, definitely. You're right, Chuck. And, you know, I, I can attest that even uh, I know the bickering always continues about what do, what do horse racing organizations do. But, uh, you know, as a former NARA employee, I can tell you there's there's new blood, there's new ideas that's flowing and even at the Horseman's Organization in New York with NYSA trying to help out with the compensation and the fund, you know, everything's working together in lockstep movement in order to make it better for overall for everybody. Yeah, New York seems to have their, their, uh, their act together in, in a lot of ways. Um, and it's difficult. I mean, operating a business in New York is, is I, I, you know, ran a racing stable for 20 years and um, we were based out of Kentucky for a while. We were based out of Jersey for a while. We uh, came to New York for the summers. Um, I, I had the horses in New York around a couple of years. And the paperwork and the the stuff that entails uh, having a business in New York was 
pretty much worse than everybody else combined. Yeah. So it, it's, I, uh, you know, doing things in New York is, is not an easy thing to do, but, um, but you know, like you said, you guys seem to, to have the breeders and the horsemen's organization and, and the, um, you know, Naira and, and I guess to a lesser extent the Finger Lakes, uh, you guys all seem to kind of be on board moving in the right direction. Definitely. You know, that's that's the game plan and how New York goes and how Kentucky and Florida and California is how the industry goes, and we just want to continue for everybody to come together. And you can see it in the television broadcasts that are featured, which are giving everybody an opportunity to say, hey, you know, just turn it on Fox Sports 2, you'll see a race, rather than how do I watch racing. So we're just working to make things easier. You know, <laughs> racing looks so great when it's on the networks. <laughs> the, just the camera, uh, and I know everyone that drives the, ca- the the camera angles during the race makes everybody nuts, <laughs> including myself. Especially when they go to the drone view, you know, like it's kind of a. I, I was talking uh, last week. I said, you know, we should come up with like a drone view for stewards. And that I mean, would be good. Yeah. But like. When they turn down the backside and uh, like NBC goes to the drone view, it's like, all right, I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know where any of the horses are. <laughs> and they flip back and they flip back, and it's like, man, that drives me crazy. But just the the color of obviously those networks are using the the best possible cameras that are uh, you know the best yeah. technology and and racing in um, in high def on, on is you know with the colors and and the speed of it, it's just kind of a a, a beautiful view. I mean, um, yeah, definitely. It, it took us a while to get there, but you know, when when everybody was you know going to play on board, and now that we're in HD and most tracks that are simulcast, it's just great to see. Yeah, it really is. It's it's uh, it's nice to see, and um, you know, I know the winters is, is still a struggle, and uh, I mean, just just part of that's just part of racing in. Uh, in up north, yeah. um, I, I stayed in, and I had, a, uh, I think, two years I had horses at Aqueduct in the winter time, and a couple years I, I had horses at Turfway Park in the winter time, and yeah. and the, the weather is a challenge. I mean, it, it just is, and uh, it's it's so far out of your control that um, it's it's very very frustrating, <laughs> especially when you have a horse that's training good, and all of a sudden you you you, you have a week and a half of of bad tracks or ice or cancel races and it's it's, yeah. it's very difficult to, to to deal with but uh but uh, I appreciate uh, appreciate you coming on and, and talking to us and uh I'd like to have you back on this summer um before or after or during um the sale up in Saratoga I might Definitely. make it you know maybe I'll I'll make a a field trip of it <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, Chuck. You know, come come on back home. You know, you know you'll be welcomed with open arms. Yeah, that that's uh, that'd be a that'd be a fun thing. And uh, you guys also had the Fazek Tipton had the October sale that was postponed, or, or did they move it to, to Timonium or? Yeah, Timonium. Yeah. yeah, in Maryland. Yeah. Yeah. So the the two New York bread sales kind of got uh, screwed up by the COVID situation, like so many other things. I mean, you see, I uh, keep getting. Um, notices about NBA games being canceled and yeah it's a it's a challenge it sucks but we're going to keep on keeping on 
Definitely. We're keeping fighting Chuck, and I'd be happy to be back anytime to join you to talk about how New York is always improving. All right, Nadja. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck. Bye. All right. That's Nadja Thompson of the New York Thoroughbred Breeders. He is the executive director. And um, we're going to... Um, we're going to go to a break first, and when we come back, we'll have Steve Scrunchy of the Florida Horsemen's and Benevolent and Protective Agency. Why, in the past decade, has BRL Equine become the premier equine supplement company in the industry? Because we spend millions in research and development before we ever put out a product because we use only FDA-supervised facilities to manufacture for us, because what we say is in them is in them, because they work, because if you're not happy, I'll give you your money back, and because top trainers and veterinarians in thoroughbred racing, standard bread racing, three-day eventing, and barrel racing all trust 